sitting right next to me is Devin and we are school counselors and we are here to help you create connection with your children. We're using different kinds of fun parodies at the beginning of our podcast and they're songs for fun and they're also on our blog so they're fun to listen to if you need to cry or laugh. That's what we're calling it. It's at www.compassionate-parenting.com. Parenting.com. I want to say slash. No idea why. <laughs> so come and check us out there. We're going to be doing different parenting topics for every episode, hopefully to help you kind of understand some of these topics and what you can do to help yourself and your kids if you're having any sort of issues or difficulties. And so today what we're going to really be talking about is perfectionism. It's a big deal. It happens to a lot of us. And it really does affect our kids. So we asked a couple of random 12th graders, what is perfectionism? And they came up with some really insightful little quotes. One was, you work until you feel it's right. And the other one was, impossible. Okay. And both of these quotes are really... um, like I said, insightful, because all of us really do want to try to work and do the best that we can. And that turns into wanting to be perfect, which is actually an anxious response. It creates anxiety, wanting to be perfect. And anxiety is really just a fancy word for fear. Anxiety is a fear response at its core. So if you think about the last time that you were truly fearful, um, what did it feel like? Try to imagine all the feelings that were brought up because of this fear response. Um, what did your, how did your body respond? So how did your body respond to this? What happened inside your body? A lot of things can go on. You can get a red face, feel really hot, blotchy. You can get butterflies in your stomach, dry mouth, lightheaded, being faint, I don't know, jelly legs, sweaty hands, lumps in your throat, shaky voice, difficulty breathing, feeling like you're going to (laughs) die, having blurred vision, Um, really maybe having to go to the bathroom, really wanting to get out having a headache, a rapid heartbeat. Man, there are so many things that can go on in your body. And these are all anxious feelings, right? The fear and the anxiety that you're in your body. And this comes from your brain, actually. Um, So usually this is visual for us, but I'm just going to try and explain it verbally. We have a hand model of your brain. 
So if you take your, your hand, maybe your left hand, and you put your left thumb into your palm right underneath of your pinky finger, and then wrap your other fingers down around it, you should have almost like a fist, but with your thumb in the middle of it. And if you hold that up to your temple, that's kind of your brain in your head. And what we're looking at is the middle two fingernails, that's your prefrontal cortex. And this part of your brain is what gives you good and bad. It gives you your moral compass. Um, and this is also where your emotions are regulated in your brain. And if you flip up your, your top four fingers and you just have your thumb there, this is what's called the limbic system. And this is where our emotions come from. This area is also home to the amygdala. And the amygdala is very important in our brains because it's the part of our brain that keeps us alive. It's the part of our brain that when a tiger is chasing us, makes us either run away, freeze and hide, or get something and try and fight it off, right? So it's literally a survival mechanism in our brain. So it's actually a really important part of our lives. When, when we're having anxiety or when a tiger is chasing us, right? If you bring your, your fingers back down, what happens is your fingers pop up and you flip your lid. So the prefrontal cortex, that part that we were talking about that is the moral center and that regulates emotions, is literally no longer working because you don't want to have to think about whether you should run away from the tiger or whether you should pick up something and try and fight it or whether you should play dead on the ground. You want that to just be automatic. And that's really what's happening when we're talking about anxiety. It's flipping our lid and our amygdala is really trying to keep us alive. And there's a difference um, when we logically think about things. And when our lids are flipped, the logic part of our brain no longer is functioning. And that's, that's the part that we have to remember is that when we are in big, feeling high anxiety, we are not functioning at our, at our best, if well at all. Okay, and so for striving for this perfectionism, there are so many anxious feelings that come in around that, that striving for perfection. So we are actually in a very fragile state because it's like our, we're hanging on. Our prefrontal cortex is not fully wrapped around our fingers and the amygdala is sort of in this gray zone and can easily be flipped and put the body into survival mode. And this is something that we have to understand. It's not a choice. It's what our body's doing to keep us alive. So it may not even be a real threat doing homework perfect or getting a perfect score on a test or doing things over and over and over again to get it just right. Those aren't real threats to our survival, but our brain reacts to them in the same way as it would to a tiger chasing us that might actually kill us. So if you want to learn more about sort of this neuroscience and how our brain works, especially the teenage brain and the, the child's brain, Dr. Dan Siegel has quite a few books and videos and resources out that can be really, really helpful for parents to understand these types of things. So when looking at 
and understanding that perfectionism is actually anxiety, which is actually fear, which is automatic, therefore not a choice, well, what do you do about it? Well, first let's, let's look at some behaviors that we shouldn't do yeah. to create anxiety, more anxiety in our kids. Well, one of the things that I have noticed over the years is that perfectionist, perfectionistic kids have perfectionistic parents and characteristics of parents that want the best from their kids. Yet some of the behaviors that don't really help them is worrying about the actual grade and not focusing on other things like how hard they worked and those kinds of things. So that focus on grades, not allowing your child to make mistakes. Maybe you also don't like to show that you make mistakes. You have to do everything perfect. You want to be the perfect parent, perfect in your job, and never do anything wrong. And your kids pick up on that. They're smart. Mm. They understand these things. And so if you have to be perfect, then it makes sense that then they have to be perfect. And this might never have been said in the family. I've never said that. I've never done that. But kids feel it. They feel what you expect. And if they aren't meeting up to those expectations, it makes it a really hard task for them to climb up to. And over the years, I've also talked with a lot of kids who, um, whose parents have focused on the future since they were two. My child's going to go to Harvard. Uh, these expectations for this future of, of what you want for your child really creates a lot of havoc in the here and now, especially for those that are anxious and have a perfectionistic tendency. We also see a lot, not just from parents, but from teachers saying things like, but they're not working up to their potential. And that is also focusing on the future because potential is never something that we can live up to. It's always something that we're striving for. And so if we give the kids this idea that they have to live up to their potential, that they have to be their perfect selves all the time, that's again going to flip their lid and create that anxiety for them that is perfectionism. And coming back to that one child's quote that it's impossible we have these expectations and it's not expectations it's wants for the best for our kids but yet is wanting the best and expecting them to keep working and striving and being this this amazing whatever uh for their perfect scores perfect writing samples never falling down and figuring out how do you work through that all of these things make for really anxious anxious kids. All right. So now that we've talked about all the things that don't help, I think we can start getting into the things that you as a parent can do to help calm that anxious brain in your perfectionistic kids. So bring those fingers back down and calm that amygdala. Um, one of the biggest things that is going to really help is model making mistakes. And for you perfectionistic parents, it's going to be really, really hard because it's gonna create anxiety in you, and you're gonna to have to be able to work through that. And by modeling, I think when we're talking about this is having conversations about stories that happened at work, or maybe even didn't happen at work, about how 
you know, you really screwed up and you felt bad, but you got back up and you looked at it again and you know what? You tried your best and now you're going to look at it and keep working towards it. I have a really great story that I tell kids. Um, I actually failed my eighth grade social studies course um, and I failed it. It's a funny story. I failed because I didn't want to do a project because the teacher was wrong. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I don't tell them that part. I tell them I failed. And then when I went into my ninth grade social studies course, how I had to explain to the teacher why I had failed and how that how I was going to start working differently to get a, a good grade starting out in high school. And that was really hard for me, but it, I'm still okay. I'm still here. I'm still a professional. I'm still able to do what I need to do. So even those small stories like that can really have a big impact. Yeah. Um, also, you know, patience, <laughs> which is sometimes very difficult when we have resistant kids or kids that are very, very anxious. Um, letting them know that you're patient with, with them getting to where they need to be, that learning is a process. It is not perfect right away. Um, that grades, even though at the end of the day they matter, but they don't matter life and death like these kids really think that they do. And being calmer about, you know, mistakes. So if, if the glass gets broken on the table, right, not freaking out and being like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that this just happened. Because we can get stressed ourselves and have these flip our lid reactions, right? But if, if we can be a little bit calmer when our kid comes home with a four or a low grade, um, instead of jumping right to, well, how do you fix this? What do we do? Having a little bit of a conversation, you know, they're probably going to be really anxious about telling you. So how do you help them calm down? How do you be calm for them so that they can bring that prefrontal cortex back online and really have a rational conversation about what needs to be done? to get a better grade if that's really what they want and what they can do. And I think that this grade, the grades, which are sometimes the bane of, I think, all schools, um, <laughs> the bane of, of, of everything, really. Um, but if you don't focus so much on the grades, but you focus on the learning and the uh, persistence behind the actual of getting the grade. So if you saw your child working really hard and focused on this project and you know they were talking about it and they were so involved and then they didn't quite get the grade that they thought that they were going to get focus not on the grade but on all the stuff that they did to get that because that's the important part of learning the grade should follow that sometimes it doesn't and so we have to be willing to allow them to fall down and make mistakes to learn from them and move forward. And I think one of the last things, one of the biggest things um, that we can do to promote resilience in our kids, and when we talk about resilience, we mean the ability to bounce back after some sort of adversity or, or an obstacle in our path, right? So for me, it was being able to go into a, my social studies class in high school and figure out how to do it differently than I did and not just give up because I had failed, right? Um, and one of the biggest ways that we can do that is using mindfulness, right? Because mindfulness is a way that we bring that prefrontal cortex back online. So if you curl your fingers back around your thumb, 
you're calming your amygdala and you're bringing that rational brain, that, that moral and, and regulatory brain back online. And we have a lot of different ways that we can practice mindfulness with our kids and for ourselves. I mean, I practice mindfulness daily because otherwise I think I would just rip my hair out all the time. Mm-hmm. And with a two-year-old at home, I also practice mindfulness and breathing techniques to help me make better decisions around what's going on. So, yes, mindfulness. We're using that word. It's a big buzzword these days, but there's a reason that it's a big buzzword. And it's really simple, actually. Mindfulness is just paying attention on purpose to the present moment without judgment right? And we say without judgment because if we're paying attention on purpose to the present moment, but then we're like, oh, but this is bad. Oh, this is bad. I shouldn't be breathing this way. I shouldn't be doing this. Then that completely takes us out of the mindfulness. So the without judgment part is really, really important, I think. And it's the hardest part. Definitely. And you're learning to actually calm your amygdala down. You're calming your system down so that you can deal with whatever it is that's coming. Mm -hmm. And they've done quite a lot of studies with people who practice mindfulness, you know, Buddhist monks and and even everyday people. And they've noticed that if you have a consistent practice, it actually grows neurons and gray matter and connection in that prefrontal cortex, that thing that we need to regulate our emotions. And it, and it reduces the, the size and the gray matter and the connections in the amygdala, which is that fight flight, you know, part of our brain, that survival part of our brain. And so why is that important, you ask? Well, it is super important because if our gray matter is smaller in our amygdala and we understand that whether the threat is real or not and we can slow that timing down that we are under threat and that we can recognize and regulate our bodies so that we can say "Mm, this is stressing me out i'm going to calm myself down i know that i'm okay i'm not going to die right now maybe of embarrassment maybe of something else but this isn't going to uh, really threaten me and then i can start being able to come up with some ways and some resilience on how do I bounce back from this perceived threat. And then, you know, as you practice it, that becomes more and more automatic. So you don't have to think your way through it as much every time that you do it. It becomes a a pattern of behavior. It becomes just like the amygdala fear response is automatic. You don't have to think about it. The more you practice the mindfulness, the more you create those pathways in your brain, the more you create those connections. So it's kind of like if you walk through a patch of grass. So the first time you walk through it, the second time, the third time, even the fourth time, you're not gonna see your path very much. But the more you walk through it, the more that's going to dig out a pathway. And if, so, if you use it over and over, eventually it's going to be super visible, right? And it's the same in our brain. We create these neural pathways. So our response to stress and to anxiety, instead of becoming a survival threat response, it becomes a calm, rational, regulated response. So what does this do? It really helps build different tools in our self-regulation toolbox. It gives us new strategies to be able to be purposeful with 
how we respond to stress, anxiety, and being perfectionistic in our approach to life. And we know that mindfulness, um, you don't just jump into that right away. You sometimes have to be purposeful in looking at how do you become more mindful, yet time is, you know, an issue for everybody. Nobody has the time. So we've actually found some mindfulness apps that you can look at and explore with yourself, your family, and your children. And really, it, it doesn't take as much time as you think it does. So what I tell kids um, is to start with five minutes a day. And that's really not that much. We can all find five minutes a day in our schedule to practice mindfulness. Um, and each one of these apps that we're going to talk about has a timer function. You know, they, you can do small time, you can do a lot more time. You can build up the time um, that you practice every day as you get better and better at it. And really, if you're having a really, really stressful day and you can't find the time, that's when you really need to find the time. Mm -hmm. And I think also, you know, sometimes even if you don't have an app, app with you, if you just sit down and focus on your breath for five long, deep breaths in and out, that is just a way of promoting a calm space for yourself. So the apps that we typically use, um, the first one is Stop, Breathe, and Think. And I give this to a lot of my kids mm -hmm. here. Um, and they really like it. It's really easy to use. It's quick. And you can do a 5, 15, or 20-minute mindfulness exercise. It's guided. It's really easy. Um, then there's Calm, which is also a nice one. Headspace, Smiling Mind, Take a Chill. Aura, A-U-R-A. That one's actually pretty nice. I've tried that one myself, and I like a lot of the guided meditations in that one. And then there's Simple Habit and Mind Shift. And all of these are something that you can take a look at, maybe even explore as a family. Like each of you choose a mindfulness app and figure out how it might work for the other people or discuss it at the table. Uh, trying to talk about how do we actually regulate our bodies is a wonderful uh, thing to, to talk about. Great for a family meeting, um, if you do family meetings. Um, so I think we've covered most of the stuff that we have about perfectionism. Just remember that it's never ever a choice, right? For you or for your kids, this is something that our brains do naturally to protect ourselves, to keep ourselves alive, and that's a good thing. It's just when we use things like grades or performance at work or these things that aren't really threatening to our lives, to our, our physical health, and we take those as threats, that's when it becomes anxiety and that's when it becomes destructive. Right. And if that is something that's going on, please do contact your school counselor or if you see a licensed counselor outside of the school realm, please have a conversation with them because they have the tools to help you and talk through your specific case. All right. Thanks um, for listening. Woohoo! Woo! Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to our parenting podcast. And remember to come visit us at www.compassionate-parenting.com for more blog posts, Twitter feed, and all of our other podcasts.